Namaste to all of you. Welcome tonight to a new satsang. And uh, it is my wish this season to conclude the series, the long series of satsangs on the Gospel of Luke. It was probably 15 years ago or more that I started with some satsangs on the words of Jesus, teachings of Jesus, as they are materialized in the Gospels, in the four Gospels in the Bible. It would have been my dream to finish all four of them and then to give a reading on the Gospel of Thomas, which is not in the Bible and which is the one which uh, was not adjusted in any way by the institution of the church. But of course, these teachings are so vast, there is so much to say. And meanwhile, I wished to do satsangs on so many other themes that um, only now and then I've been uh, continuing with the satsangs on the teachings of Jesus. And uh, therefore, this has taken way longer time than what we thought will happen, than what we thought, that how long we thought it would take. With a little bit of uh, good chance, this season will finish, this summer will finish the Gospel of Luke. And then uh, time will tell if any time next year or some other time I will have the um, initiative, I will feel the impulse to round up, to close the circle and to do the last of the four Gospels, the most esoteric of them, the Gospel of John. Anyway, we do these uh, Gospels, we do these uh, satsangs from the Gospels because Jesus is very significant in so many ways. And um, we always look at yogis that have been great, a Milarepa, or as I was recently showing to the people from the Tibetan Yoga Workshop, uh, Lama Merit Intellect, or the likes of them. We look at great yogis like Shankaracharya or uh, Tantric Masters like Apinava Gupta. We look very much up to the great yogis that have emerged in the last 200 years, starting with uh, Ramakrishna, of course, in the 19th century, and then some of the real big ones of the 20th century. And we always look at great yogis, and we try to take them as models to take them as standards of yogic living. And when we do that, we can never fail to realize that when you compare Jesus to the history of yoga, you see that indeed Jesus was a divine model. And of course, he had a very peculiar function. Not so many yogis who are born in this world, they were born to change the world. Not so many yogis who were born in this world, they were born to give to humanity a new religion, a new covenant, a new uh, way of interacting with the divine consciousness. These functions are usually given to avatars, 
and to super, super great and well-aspected yogis, it's like a warrant, it's like a special permission, it's like a special gift which is given. We know that many yogis like Shivananda or Yogananda or Aurobindo or the likes of them, they lived their yogic life, they experienced their own aspiration, they practiced, they opened their Ajna Chakra and or their Sahasrara, the crown chakra, and they have reached states of Samadhi. And because of having reached states of Samadhi, they discovered many of the mysteries of life. They discovered uh, somehow the meaning of life itself. They have fulfilled many sacred goals of their soul and they became role models. They became great teachers who passed on yoga to the next generations. But you cannot compare a person who is blessed with aspiration and practices and practices and ping reaches a state of accomplishment. You cannot compare those with the divine avatars who are born from above and who are born down here with a clear mission to guide to inspire, to influence history, to shake humanity and so many other things which they have done. That's why a Jesus, on one hand we say, if he was so big, then what he said must be valid for the yogis. And therefore let's see how is it valid for the yogis. How, what is the yogic angle? How can you understand from a yogic standpoint what Jesus is teaching? Because if it's completely different, it means either that Jesus has one God and the yogis have another God, and then that's mayhem, that's a mess. Or if not, it means that at least one of those two sides is wrong completely. Not to mention the tragic possibility that both could be wrong and there is no God, there is no spirit, there is no immortality, there is no freedom, and uh, both Jesus and the yogis, and the followers of Jesus and the followers of yoga, they have been groups of population that have been afflicted mentally, or they have been sadly misguided one way or another, who misunderstood completely the nature of reality and all of that. That's why Jesus becomes very relevant because for all the great yogis who spoke about him, including Ramakrishna, including whoever you want to say, Yogananda, Paramahamsa, or Shivananda, or others, Jesus was the most divine of all the yogis. Jesus was like the king of all the yogis. Jesus was what every yogi would, would dream to be or to become one day, a divine model. And adding to this the fact that nobody changed the world in three years and a half like Jesus did, and adding to that the fact that Jesus is totally uncompromising on certain issues, that means he does not feel that he has to be politically correct about the spiritual life. He just hits right in the heart. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And because of this, then in today's world, which is a confused world in search of spiritual light, then the message of Jesus is 
very relevant, very powerful. So it's worth it to put the effort, the metaphysical effort, the intuitive effort, the aspirational effort, the devotional effort, and all the others to understand what Jesus meant to say. Today, we have a classical example because I'm going to go through some of the teachings which Jesus gave just before going to Jerusalem. So basically in the last weeks of his life. And some of these teachings are very complex. And they are touching cosmic laws. The first one, I'm starting here the paragraph number 18, the chapter number 18 from the Gospel of Luke. The first of them is called here. The, the names of these paragraphs are just put later by theologians, by scholars. They do not exist in the original text of the Bible, where it's just an account of what Jesus said and did. But as a title, as a sort of a peculiar title, is the parable of the persistent widow. A widow was a typical example of a person who socially was a weak person. Like the widows in ancient Israel, they were more or less beggars. Unless they were part of a very wealthy family which took care of them, any widow... Once the male part of the family disappeared, the husband, they were not breadwinners. There were women who were not breadwinners in those days. And therefore, any widow was more or less condemned to being a beggar. And being a beggar, a woman who didn't have a husband, therefore who didn't have somebody to protect her physically or anything, such a woman was at the bottom of the society. That's why when he gives an example of this, he speaks about, when Jesus will speak about the parable of the persistent widow, he speaks about the parable of the persistent nobody, of the persistent rock bottom. Either it's a man or it's a woman, it doesn't matter. But by calling this person, this parab parabolic person, this imaginary person, by this metaphorical person calling her a widow, he basically says somebody who socially has zero power, zero influence. So it's, he speaks about the persistence of a weakling, only that the widow is not weak inside. She's strong as character. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That was, it's a very beautiful synthesis of what is going to be here. It's exactly like the discourse of the Dalai Lama. I leave you the pleasure to discover it. Who has a discourse in which he repeats all the time, never give up, never give up, never give up, if this and if that, and never give up, never give up. And that is very important. And uh, there is a poem of, I think, Fritjof Nansen, he was called, the Norwegian polar explorer, who is the one who managed to reach to the South Pole. No? And he has a poem, he even wrote a poem, which uh, has the power, which has the, if I remember correctly, which has the refrain, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No? Like all the time, all the time, he paraphrases that, and he goes in saying that the only thing which can save a lot of projects is an endless 
perseverance. Like you should be ready to die trying. You should continue trying even if you say, come on, I prepared to die. Keep trying. Keep trying. And that is very relevant for at least two reasons. One, it shows the power of compounding. It shows the power of the mind. And two, it shows that the human beings are ignorant and being not being clairvoyant, they never know when the effects are coming. We have people who do yoga for two years. They don't get a certain effect which they want. And then they give up. And I met, I've met in my life yoga teachers, gurus, who simply said if that person would have continued for another three months, they would have succeeded. And they didn't do that as assholes to just tease, to give a sort of eternal tease. They could see it. They understood the practice of yoga. They understood the effects of yoga and they could see it. And then the question is why didn't the pupil see it? The pupil is condemned not to see it. Because if the pupil would see it, then the pupil would be the teacher. So the pupil doesn't see it. And that's why for the pupil, there exists only this mantra, never give up. Sometimes the divine consciousness can put a test in front of a human being. Let's say a human being wants to use the power of yoga to become socially famous or perhaps, why not, wealthy. And that person has a karma from a previous life where they were endowed with power and they abused that power. And then the lords of the karma, some of the distributors of karma, it's related to Shambhala, but it's not 100% about Shambhala that I'm talking here. There are spirits, cardinal spirits, comparable to the Mahavidyas, perhaps a bit lower than the level of the Mahavidyas, who are administering people's karma. Remember, in karma is never simple. If you had karma in a life that you have been one of the soldiers of Genghis Khan, and you rode through Asia, and behind you there are mounds of heads of people, then there were soldiers of Genghis Khan who in one battle killed minimum 100 people. And if they participated to 30 battles, they might have killed 3,000 people in their lives. No? How are you going to pay for 3,000 murders? Because each killing is a murder, even if it's on the battlefield. So, okay, you've done this in the 10th century, in the 11th century with Genghis Khan, and meanwhile, you have lived a life four times. You've been incarnated already four times. And each one of the four times, you died violently. Somebody murdered you, because you have 2,000 or 3,000 murders on your book. So that means that now, you still have 2,996 murders. When on earth are you going to pay all those? Because you cannot be killed more than once in a lifetime. No? And therefore, everybody has a very rich karma. You cannot say that now if I have a karma, 
It's the karma with which I come from the previous life. It is true. It is the karma with which I come from the previous life, but that karma does not contain events just for a lifetime in it. If I have 2,900 crimes, manslaughters in my karma, that's karma for lots and lots of lifetimes. And therefore, a human being has a lot of karmas. And then the lords of the karma, according to the astrological thing, like, hey, this person is born in this century with Mars in this astrological sign and with Venus in this astrological sign and this and that, they say, okay, from all the list of karmas, let's choose this, 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 because they fit with the horoscope. So you are coming and you are going to have 120 events out of which 90 are going to be unpleasant and 30 are going to be pleasant. And that's your karma for this lifetime. But those 120 events, they are a selection from thousands and thousands which are waiting in your backpack. And that's why you have a certain selection of karma prepared for a life. Suddenly you become like Shivananda or like Ramakrishna or, okay, then everything changes. Then God is sending a powerful archangel to look over you and to reshuffle the karma and to select and to simply say this person has become a VIP in the world of God, in the kingdom of God, and this person has to have a special deal. So things are reshuffled. But if you don't contradict your horoscope and your karma, then you just go like this and you have a certain dish. There is a menu, a menu with 120 major events for this lifetime. And then somebody makes an effort, discovers the law of perfect accomplishment, uh, this millionaire mind, yoga or whatever. No? And this person starts pushing like the persistent widow. And then it can very well be that the laws of the mind will not work in a linear way. Like, for example, the lords of the karma or the Mahavidyas or the masters from Shambhala or God himself, if you prefer to have a personal relationship with your father in heaven, is looking at your life and says, Oscar is trying to do something which he did before and it had very bad results. Now he is again trying to boost his ego and to become famous and rich and powerful. And that didn't do very well last time. So this time I'm going to make sure that he understood it. And to make sure that he understood it, I, God, can decree, and there will always be something in his karma to take off the wall and throw into the game, to pick it up off the roster and throw it into the game, you'll always find such karma which allows you to do that. Not to mention that God can do it like this even without karma. But let's suppose that God is just a judge and acts only according to karma, which he isn't. And then God simply says, Oscar, you know, to just to check his persistence and because he has to pass some tests, because he owes me from last time, then for him this thing will take three times more than for the normal people. No? That's why you never know how long it will take and for what, because the game 
is not a simple linear game. This game of life is very convoluted and it has many, many pluses and minuses, ups and downs to it. And that's why you don't know. The only way to solve it is to be persistent. There is nothing else but to keep trying. Never give up, as the Dalai Lama says. So, Jesus told them a parable in this way. He did not explain what I told you now about previous lives and this. Or if he did, then they didn't write it down. But metaphysically, this is how we understand this. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. A very beautiful parable. Because he doesn't say that this judge was bad. He says he didn't fear God, but God doesn't fear God. No? Kali doesn't fear God. No? So at the highest levels, nobody fears God because everybody knows they are one with God. No? And nor cared about men. There are aspects of the Shiva consciousness. There is a Shiva, which is Shiva turned away from manifestation. Like there is a Shiva who shows you his ass, who shows you his back. Like he doesn't care. The manifestation is a dream. It's a soap bubble. It's a Maya. And I can very well choose to ignore it. If I stay in pure spirit, Purusha. Yeah, but Prakriti is also a part of the man. Yeah, you know what? I can afford to wait until the Mahapralaya when the universe will be dissolved back into spirit. And then there will be no Prakriti, there will be no Maya, and you are not going to give me this tantric jerk off that you have to take care about the manifestation. Look, I can wait 700 billion years until the manifestation is over and we get to the night of Brahma. No? Then tell me to take care of the manifestation. So in this way, whoever has access to that consciousness can become very easily indifferent. Like the whole game doesn't matter at all. And therefore this judge who neither fear God nor care about men, we are not told that he is unjust. We are telling that this God didn't give a damn. There was no way of twisting the arm of this God. Because he was not afraid of God. Like, okay, I have to do justice because God will punish me. He was not afraid of God. And he didn't give a shit about man. And therefore, this God was completely, this judge, he was completely independent. We could say that this God was, uh, this judge was in a certain way totally detached. Like the God of Vedanta, like Brahman. If now the whole galaxy disappears... What will Brahman feel about that? Nothing. There may have been whole galaxies that collapsed with each other or disappeared in this universe. And do you think Brahman grew a pimple on his cheek because of it? Didn't give a shit because it's all just a Maya taken from the standpoint of Vedanta. And thus, actually this judge is not that Jesus wants to depict a bad person. Jesus wants to depict an inflexible, non-influenceable person. Therefore, this judge could be an aspect of God, could be God under a certain aspect, himself. And there was a widow in that town, rock bottom, the Miss Nobody, 
who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Okay, the adversary traditionally is the devil, right? But you say, who is the adversary? There's only one adversary. Satan is the adversary, you know? So it's like, it could be like she was praying to God, save me from the evil, give me victory over the evil. If that, it's on many layers, right? Because Jesus can refer, like he's saying, okay, this woman really had a problem. Like, who is the adversary of a widow? A dead, poor woman with no power, no influence, a widow. You know, she has an adversary. Nobody bothers, you know, nobody even bothers. You know, you don't even see her on the street. So it's like the adversary is a symbolic thing, again, and this woman is asking for a fulfillment, for a victory of some sort. For some time he refused. So God simply said, let me see when will you get bored to ask me this thing. You ask me to give you a victory over poverty, for example, like you ask me to be wealthy. I didn't give it to you when you are 15 years old. I didn't give it to you when you are 25 years old. I didn't give it to you when you are 35 years old. I didn't give it to you when you came to 45 years old. I didn't give it to you even when you are 55 years old. Why? Simply because that's how I felt. That's how I decided. I don't give a shit about it. And now you are asking me something which to me sounds very childish. No doubt it could be very important in your life. But for me, as God, it's not really. I wouldn't budge a finger for this. No. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. What did I tell you? when I spoke about objective and subjective in Kashmiri Shaivism intro. God is subjective. And if you do not bug God like a mosquito, he will not see you. You don't exist for God. Because you are passive. You are like the background in a photo. You are just some passive aspect in the crowd. A name in the crowd. A number in the crowd. 99% of the people on this planet, they are just that. They live, and then when they will die, exception made for a few years, members of their family, nobody will remember them. Nobody will know they ever existed. No? You, We will remember that there was a guy called Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein. We will remember that there was a Praxiteles in the Greek arts, or there was a Leonardo da Vinci or something. Some people are getting remembered. Charlemagne and whoever. You know, you name it. Ieyasu Tokugawa, the first shogun of Japan. You know, there are people who get remembered. But the other 99%, maybe 99.9, you don't. You know? That's why, basically, Jesus is trying in a very discreet way to give you an understanding of the highest levels of consciousness. Like Kali has to take care of time in a gazillion galaxies. What do you mean to Kali? 
you come and say, give me justice, give me success, uh, maybe in a million years. No? Like, I don't have time right now. You are not important enough right now. No? Therefore, Jesus gives the key. He simply says, even if he was not afraid of God, because maybe he, he speaks about God himself, even because he didn't care about men, because men are like ants that come and go, nevertheless, he says, because this widow keeps bothering me, like the mosquito, she keeps bothering me. You know, God wants shanti, shanti, shanti. You no, know, and the fucking widow doesn't give him his shanti. No, she comes and she says, but give me, but give me, but give me. No, then, of course, you can say, but is it a test? Is it a threshold? Yes, all those are true, but Jesus doesn't explain those. He simply explains something else from the standpoint of consciousness. Because consciousness is consciousness. People, you understand consciousness because you are conscious. It's true that your consciousness is not pure because your consciousness is full of samskaras and full of things which come from the astral body and mental body. Emotions, preferences, brainwashing, whatever you have there in your psychic apparatus, in your mental and emotional bodies. And not only, but I'm talking about those as the core of it. But you have a consciousness and that consciousness reacts like that. Like even in that piece, the one who doesn't fear God and doesn't care about men still will react to persistence, to perseverance, to insistence. No? So he said, I will see that she gets justice. No? She, after all, she deserved that justice. But that justice could have been postponed for five lifetimes. She will get justice, but... Uh, in 2837, you know, it's like, why do you bother me now? Now I'm taking a nap. It's my siesta time. Vishnu is sleeping on the universal snake. Don't disturb him. But the widow is disturbing even Vishnu in his sleep. And she says, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And eventually, God himself, who is a consciousness, the ultimate consciousness, simply says, okay, okay, the persistent one. I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Like God says, I start feeling worn out because every day, every day, every day, she keeps asking. This is what we have to do. We have to wear God out. Because you don't know when your time is coming and when your karma gets to fruition and when things are coming naturally. Maybe you are asking for something which is not in your horoscope, not, not meant to happen in this lifetime. Can you get it? Yes. But you have to be like the persistent widow. You have to be a plague. And the Lord said, that's Jesus, of course. Listen to what the unjust judge says. Now he calls him unjust judge. Because he didn't uh, appear to make justice in due time. 
And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? There's a very strange twist of phrase in the end. Because he says, listen to what the unjust says. And if the unjust judge, who is a parable of imperfection, does this, then will God not do the same and much more than that? Therefore, he basically says, if this widow insisted to a careless judge, then to God, who is not careless, who has sides which are deeply compassionate and loving, you should insist, 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 insist. Because you will get justice in the meaning that you will get the fulfillment of things. You know, if you deserve it, if you have done your tapas, if you have done whatever is necessary, you will get it. But this is getting it through prayer. Remember, the, this woman was praying, I have a house. I don't have a house. Give me a house. Because this, somebody took my house or something. Now I sleep on the street. You know? But you can say, hey, she could have put together stone over stone. And she could have slowly, slowly in two years built her own house. That's the way of doing things through your own personal effort without God. You don't have to bother God for that. In the moment when you bother God, it becomes a prayer. And then it's like, I don't know if I can do it or not, but I'm asking you to please confirm and give it to me in that way. So therefore, this is bhakti yoga. This is devotional. This is getting it from the divine, from above. And therefore, Jesus simply says, you should never stop, never give up. And he says, I tell you, God will see that they get justice and quickly. He encourages people. No? Read the Psalms of David. He has some anahata. He is an enlightened king. He is a prophet of God. But being a Jewish king in a time of war and manipulation and this, he is also very manipuristic. When you read the life of David the prophet, you see that there is a lot of manipura. He takes the wife from one of his soldiers because he likes her and he sends him to a battle in a war where he gets slaughtered. He even has sometimes a dirty Manipura, an ugly Manipura, this Mr. David, who after all, when you put what he did beautiful over what he did shitty, he did a hundred times more beautiful things than shitty things and therefore he is a prophet. He is considered to be having a positive account with God, a massively positive account with God. And this David, being a poet, a mystical poet, he wrote songs which are called the Psalms. Read them. The Psalms, in the Christian vision of the relationship with God, they are the most manipuristic prayers that a Christian can say. Normally the Christian prayers, like the prayer of the heart and all that, they are very much anahata. They are very much mystical and humble. But they kept the prayers from David because they acknowledged that David was one of the root prophets from which all this grace came. 
And when you take the prayers of David, the prayers of David are about, and God, please uh, save me from my opponent and my enemy should bite the dust and make, you know, because I'm humble, I will serve you. I will. It's pledges on Manipura. Like I'm going to be your faithful dog for all eternity, but you in exchange, give me victory about all my enemies and all that. It's all on Manipura. And therefore, Jesus is referring to all of this field. You know, he says, God will give you justice and quickly. He even says, and quickly, like the persistent widow took a while. But if you access God in the way in which Jesus advises, then you can say, but look, I prayed for this for three years every day and it didn't come. Okay. You're having some obstacles. God is submitting you to a test. Maybe it just takes three years and a half to achieve that. You never know. So kind of continue, continue, continue. However, he says, why however? That God will give everybody justice quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Like when I will come the second time because he will, now he was there. He said, in 2,000 years, people will still understand this. People will still do this. Already at this time, Jesus looks at everything through the angle of history and eternity. Because he prepares to die. He knows that death is coming. He has said it a couple of times and he will keep on saying as it comes closer and closer. And therefore, he looks at his legacy. And his legacy is, I'm teaching you to never give up. I'm teaching you to be persistent like the widow. And then in the end says, however, when I shall come again, will there still be this kind of faith on earth? If Jesus comes this century, I don't know what will be in the next century, but if Jesus comes now in this century, yes, there still is this faith. Very few people have it. But some people do, still. So there is a number of whatever, a million people left on the face of planet Earth that still have this kind of faith. And they are ready to put their lives, even when they don't see the light in the end of the tunnel. In a certain way, Jesus is helping because Jesus gives the light in the end of the tunnel. He says, if you believe me, you will believe me that there is a light in the end of the tunnel and just go on and on believing in this light in the end of the tunnel. And he even uses the word quickly. He says, it will happen. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and the most righteous people at the time of Jesus at that time were the Pharisees. Pharisee became the equivalent in English language. If you say to somebody, man, you are a Pharisee. No, it would mean that you are a fake practitioner. You are pretending. You are, you are a hypocrite. You are histrionically doing some things to look like you are doing something, but in practice you are not doing it. Uh, the Pharisees didn't think about themselves like that. The Pharisees thought that they were the salt of the earth. They thought that they were doing the right things. 
there were some sort of religious fanatics, but without the core, without the substance. And to these ones he is talking. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on anybody, on everybody else, this was common in the Jewish society also because there was a lot of Manipura and some people thought that they were more holy than the others and especially the Jews more holy than everybody else around and therefore that the others didn't matter and you have to look down on them. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, these are, this was the hypocrite, the one who believed well, and the other, a tax collector. The tax collectors, they were not literally sinners. They were more like political sinners in, that, in those days, Israel, because they collected the tax, and the tax was going to the Roman Empire, to the local king who gave it to the Roman Empire to a large extent. And that's why the tax collectors were considered traitors. They were hated, despised. But it was not really directly a sin, like uh, you are a prostitute, you are a, you know, a direct sin ag ag against the rules of the time. It was a semi-sin. It was a sin which was by convention, like people didn't like the tax collectors and they considered them dirty. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. These are clear sins, yes? Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Like he bragged, I don't break the Ten Commandments. On top of that, I fast twice per week. That's quite meaningful, yeah? I'm fasting twice per week. And I give a tenth of all I get. That's the famous tithing, which was recommended in Christianity for a long It's a habit which was very good to take one-tenth of your raw income, of your upfront income, not of your netto profit, but of your raw income. You take 10% and give it to something which for you is the symbol of your religious connection. If you have a guru and you think that your guru is your connection, you give it to the guru, to the ashram. If you are a Christian, you give it to the church. If you are a Jew, you give it to the synagogue. If you are a Muslim, you give it to the mosque. Or to some chosen character, like a Rumi or somebody, who seems to be the embodiment of everything which is religious for you. And this, so remember, this man bragged, I don't break the Ten Commandments. I'm fasting two times per week, which is very healthy and very good. And I'm practicing the tithing, the religious tithing. I give a tenth up front, just like that. No? And then he simply said, thank you. Thank you that I am a clean person, that I'm not like all the sinners around. It sounds to be okay. You know, you are giving thanks to God. Thank you for my privilege. But it hides a very big arrogance. It hides the arrogance that I'm better than most of the other people. It does not contain any humbleness in it. 
that maybe as good as I look to myself when I look in the mirror, maybe actually I'm deluded and I have to keep my modesty because I never know how I look in the eyes of God. And thus, he was having a prayer which was uh, essentially arrogant. And that is exactly the point of this parable that you are going to see that Jesus mentions that God doesn't like the arrogant people. But the tax collector stood at a distance, like he didn't come very close. You know, he was like people who stand in the back, humble. He would not even look up to heaven where they had the thing, which was the symbol of the entrance to the holies of the holies, to the holy of the holies and everything. The altar had a big, uh, I don't even know, to a beam above the portal there. And he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast like these people who say, it's my fault, I'm a miserable, I'm not good enough. Beat his breast, which is an interesting thing, because there are techniques of activating anahata by beating your breast, by poking your breast with a finger or other different other forms of pressure. No? And beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Like he said, okay, I'm taking taxes, I'm betraying maybe Israel because if he wouldn't take tax, another one, a Roman will collect the taxes. It, it, it was not really, but as long as they had the Roman Empire on top of them, there was nothing they could do. You know? And still, this guy is saying, you know, I'm a sinner and God have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I don't even dare to get forward in the temple because maybe I'm going to get burned by the anger of God or something like this. I'm staying here in the back and I'm asking with humbleness. Even me, a sinner, can get some mercy from you, which is the right attitude. That's how Jesus wants you to pray. No? And then Jesus bluntly says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. It's a funny way of expressing it in English. I don't like how they turn the English language here, that one went home justified before God. It's not about any justification, you know, unless the word justified has abysmal meetings, meanings, which I, as a non-English speaker, don't fully understand. But it's not about going home justified. <laughs> I did it, you know, it was a good day. And that, no, it's like you're not going justified. It's going home blessed, having received grace, graced by God, blessed by God, not justified, you know, because you don't go to the church so that you will come home justified. You know? At least that's how I understand the word justification. You know? So I tell you that this man, the humble one who considered himself a sinner rather than the other, went home justified, blessed graced before God for and now he gives the mantra the conclusion for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted it's a divine law like he doesn't say it happens sometimes no like here Jesus speaks a sutra 
everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. I tell to people, people say, Swamiji, I think my brahmacharya in tantra goes well. You are exalting yourself. And the result will be that you will be humbled. You should never exalt yourself. Even if you feel that you have a good brahmacharya, or you say, my meditation is going really good. You want to bet that if you think like this, in three weeks it will go like shit? No, you shouldn't say that. No, but, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's why you have to humble yourself. Humility, said the medieval thinker, humility Humility precedes glory. Glory is preceded by humility. Like Jesus was humiliated by being crucified between two thieves. Okay, that's extreme indeed. It's to the extreme level. And then he became the king of the world. No, He became, he says, all power has been given to me on heaven, in, on the earth and in heaven. He was given all power after he was beaten and spat upon and dragged through the mud. After humility, there comes glory. One who wants to be glorified has to be able to go through humility. But those who try to exalt themselves, they will be given a lesson from above. Apparently, the divine consciousness considers that the development of this self Exaltation is very, very bad, very, very problematic, very, very pernicious for one's evolution, for one's spiritual growth, and therefore it is not encouraged at all. Not encouraged at all. Probably we refer to the myth of Satan, who is a fallen angel, who thought he could replace God. Or some, that's how the legend goes, both in Judaism and Christianity and in Islam. Now, of course, when we did the angel workshop, I explained to you that things cannot go that way. And that is a metaphorical thing. And what is the story with the angels and all that? But as a fairy tale, as a sort of a Walt Disney cartoon, you can say, and why did the devil fall? The devil fell because of its arrogance, because of its pride, because of its vanity. So vanity, pride, arrogance are the most sure way to go to hell. I am telling you, I probably said it 10 years ago in a lecture somewhere. When I lived in India and I got to know yogis, I was shocked of how few of them knew this law and lived it out. Because yoga is an environment of enterprising people, manipuristic enterprising people who say, I'm going to win my freedom, I'm going to win my immortality, then a lot is left like there is not an institution with mono. At least in the Buddhist monastery, they make you beg at six o'clock in the morning, so you will humble yourself in one way or another. In Christianity, humility is praised much. But, for example, when I was in India, 
I saw this immediately comparing it with the other spiritual environments that I'd seen in my life. Most of these ashram leaders and gurus and many in the world of yoga, they lacked humility. They were not having exactly this humility because they were pumped up by their own enterprise. They were pumped up by their own let's do it thing, spirit, tapas, willpower, self-discipline, but without the humbleness. This humbleness is of course coming from love. You find the same in the book of Bhakti, which I'm reading from at Mahashivaratri, about love. The Shiva being the god of love or Shiva being the ultimate ascetic. And the Kashmirian masters, they said, all these people in India who do asceticism, thinking that they become Shiva, if they don't find love, which means also humbleness, that they, they don't succeed. They just torture their body and mind endlessly. And it's just a spiritual masochism. It's not leading to a spiritual victory. It leads to a spiritual victory when it comes with the right heart. And the right heart can be defined as love, the real love. And that real love always comes with humbleness. Heart, the heart always comes with humbleness. And that's why here Jesus is reminding to them, like you can pray like the widow and get justice from the merciless judge and so on. But when you go to prayer, if you are arrogant and vanitous and so on, you risk to get the lot of the devil. And thus, he gives it as a law. This wrote it among the divine laws. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's how it goes with God. That's why it's preferable to often be humble. Not to say this, I cannot do this. It's not possible that I know this or that. I'm just a human being, you know, like, do I ever dare to compare myself to Jesus or to Krishna or to... Only in the meaning that both Jesus and I are Shiva. But I am a little midget of the 21st century and those are the archetypal models of humanity. There's a huge difference there. And that's why... Um, it's better that you humble yourself and God is bringing you up like come on no, do something don't be so humble you know, now you really have to step forward and do something rather than you step forward and say I'm special other people are not like me no? and then you bite the dust very severely very severely so um, this is a famous, this, this should be remembered always, especially the final sentence, which is like the conclusion. The parable is long and windy, but the conclusion is what Jesus wanted to tell them. Yeah? Don't, do not exalt yourself. Better humble yourself. It's much better if you humble yourself and God is raising you, than if you rise yourself and then God has to humble you. Because God always has the last word and the last laughter in this, in this joke. And it's much better that you start it 
with the right food. People were also bringing another story. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. For a blessing, of course. Like, bless my child, oh Jesus. By the way, if you are in our village, you know. This is a sort of an additional benefit. And it can sound as a vested interest. Like, it can sound egoistic. But let's not forget, we are talking about children. About babies. And there is something beautiful and innocent about children and babies. Like, you cannot, you can get upset that the parents are egoistic manipulators. But you cannot get angry about the children themselves. Because they are just pawns in this game. And they are not uh, conscious. Maybe when they grow up, they will do the same with their children. To uh, the next Jesus. No, but right now, the children are in a state of purity. They didn't have time to commit any grievous sins or anything like this. Ah, that some may come with a heavy karma from a previous life. That's a different story. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. So the disciples were more Catholic than Jesus. You know, they were more Christian than Jesus. <clears throat> they simply said, come on, come on. This is becoming a circus. It's almost like the people who are selling doves and lambs in the yard of the temple. You know, it's like, don't do this. You know, Jesus is not here for this. You keep on bringing your fat, stupid babies for Jesus to touch them, to bring the hands on them. And God knows what imbeciles they will be in 20 years from now. You know, and then you say he was blessed by Jesus. And so what, you know? It's like they are not so important. You are parents. You are subjectively exaggerating. And now you are bringing your babies like these are your most prized possessions or whatever, you know? And you are wasting the time of Jesus. They are trying to save Jesus. You know, like you are misusing Jesus. We know him better. He is made for something better. But they did not, they were not enlightened, you know. They did not see the real thing. So here, probably 90 times out of 100, they were right because people were stupid and they were doing all good. Like they said, don't push, please don't push Jesus. Don't jam too much. Please make way so that we can pass. You know, like people were doing a lot of animalistic, herd-like, mob-like, stupid things. No? But this was not one of them. And it's mentioned specially, like saying that even the disciples at that time, they didn't quite see which the whole point of it was. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In the science of hypnotherapy and others similar to them, it is well known that children under the age of 10, unless they suffer from some disorder, some neurological disorder, normal healthy children up till the age of 10 can be considered as already hypnotized. They are in a perpetual state of self-hypnosis. That's why whatever is told to them in the right way goes right in their subconscious mind. Only after 10 years of age, you are required to hypnotize young people who come for therapy. They need to be put under hypnosis because around the age of 10, they get a crust of conscious mind, which starts becoming judgmental 
and which starts evaluating things. But until the age of 10, children are like a sponge. And of course, people tell them all the stupid things. No? And then uh, a lot is there. But Jesus, so it's mentioned here, he says, let the little children, not the grown-up children, the little children especially, the smaller they are, if they are three years old, four years old, five years old, you know, it's like their brain is completely open to the subconscious mind. And sometimes, of course, those children are not uh, Jesus and uh, Krishna and this. So their subconscious mind doesn't mean something very deep. Even their subconscious mind is the subconscious mind of a person who 300 years ago was incarnated in a body and was selfish or not so selfish, greedy or not so greedy, stupid or not so stupid or whatever, and, was, and has a karma. So it doesn't mean that if you have access to the subconscious mind, automatically you are a genius. But nevertheless, the subconscious mind has a very vast potential. And that's why it is said that sometimes the great truths are in the mouths of children. That sometimes children can say, like the famous child from the story of Hans Christian Andersen, you know, who was the only one who said, but the, na but the emperor is naked. You know, like, that was the bloody truth. That was the truth of God. And only a child could say it. Because everybody else was an imbecile who was censoring the truth because the truth was politically incorrect and dangerous. But a child just blurted it out. This blurting out is coming directly from the subconscious mind. And Jesus loved that. He could play with that. When you are having a state of consciousness on Sahasrara, you can see that in children. They are not on Sahasrara. But they could so easily be. So easily be. That's why the Tibetans take them as children and they educate them. And when they are seven years old, they convince them that they are the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama, that they are enlightened, that they are here out of compassion for the good of the world, you know. And there were many psychologists who said, either this story with the reincarnated lamas is true or not. If you take a child at the age of four and make him study Buddhist scriptures and call him Rinpoche and reincarnated and Karmapa and this, and you educate it, it will become so. Because it's like positive self-hypnosis starting at the age of four. And then that child will not have the possibility to build negative samskaras and other things, you know. So there are skeptical people who believe the reincarnation does not exist. But the Lamaistic system of Tibet was a very clever system who was catching children, you know. It's the equivalent of Hitler Yugen. You know, catch them young and put in their mind what you want to put in their mind. No? That's why the communists and this, they were taking kids at an early age, exactly like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. They were taking them, giving them this red thing, like they still do in China, you know, like you are young communists now. Shit, they shit in their pants. They are seven years old. Some of them go home, sleep. In their sleep, they piss in their bed and they sleep. No, they are just little pieces of shit. But you tell them you are the future of communism. You are the young pioneers. You are the young, you know. And they are 
you know, then, then they started even earlier. You know, they started at the time of Ceausescu in my country. They took kids that were five years old and putting them into some pre, pre, pre communistic organizations. And they were called the hawks of the motherland. No, and people were making poems. They said, Jijel, the mother, motherland hawk, shut his pants while he was guarding the flag of his unit. You know, because they made them like in the army to guard flags. They have, you know, it's like, and they're just poor, small kids of four years old who sometimes were shitting their underwear. You know, but this is a psychological truth that children at this age can be very easily formed and formatted. Their brain can be formatted. You know? And again, I cannot say that Jesus was doing it because he would have chosen his apostles among the, among the kids and let them grow like this. He would have made a goal team, a dream team of kids. He didn't. But when you are in this higher consciousness, in this state of super consciousness, as it's called in the laws of the mind, then you can see it. You can see that kids are one millimeter from it. Just one spark at the right time, at the right place. And the kid will go saying, yeah, I'm Shiva, I'm Shiva, yeah, yeah, I know I'm Shiva, you know? you know? And the adults, they take 20 years to make themselves believe the same simple truth. You know? The kid is there. And uh, that's why in history... I have seen that most of the enlightened beings who could be grumpy, severe, and so on, they loved kids. When they were with kids, they felt very relaxed because like, they were with like-minded people in a certain way. And he said, let the children, little children, come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He means the people who are in the kingdom of God are as pure as these kids. And they have this simple... Beliefs, you can say, oh, but the kids are so candid and so naive. No? But what do you want to be? You want to be skeptical like the devil, cynical and skeptical like the old Beelzebub? No, no. you want to be exactly as a child. People like Ramakrishna were behaving like children. Childish, but childish, of course, in a superior and wise way. Not childish in a meaning of retarded or something. I tell you the truth, says Jesus. So another, he gives another final statement. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So this is something which is very difficult. That's why we need prayer and meditation and kriyas, and purification. Because we become skeptical, we become ankylosed, we don't have the candor, we don't have the power to believe, and then somebody is talking about the kingdom of heaven, or I am Shiva, or whatever, and it's like, yes, but I find it so, if you told this to me when I was seven years old, I would have bought it completely. And thus, uh, there is something beautiful in this purity. Of course, the human beings who grow up, they come from the opposite direction. They first of all have to accept the things with their reason. They have to verify it. 
No, it's like Yoga Sutra says, first you compare it with the truth of the Shastras, then you compare it with the truth of your Guru, and then you have your own experiences, which are confirming or infirming those things. And thus, this is very beautiful. It's worth meditating. To which extent can I be like a child sometimes? And I want to be like a child. I, I want to stay like a child. Like Yogananda is describing to me Hiranya Loka. It's like a fairy tale. It's wonderful. I want to believe it. I want to be there with Yogananda and Yukteswar. No? It's, it's a very, very beautiful attitude. So, first of all, remember that children have a perception. No? And I could give you concrete examples even here in the school, but you know most of you what I'm talking about. No? And so, in children, sometimes you find great truth said in a very simple, straightforward way. And at the same time, the adult person has to eliminate these crusts of the ego, of the rigidity, and have the power that in some respect, in some respect, like when I worship Kali or Virgin Mary, or when I meditate with Shiva, I'm like a child. I can be like a child. You know, I can be like very, very simple, very, very... I, I will take everything. I will take in everything. All the grace. I treat Kali like a baby. Kali will treat me like her baby. Then a baby gets assistance immediately. Because the baby is very sincere. When it soils itself, when it has some pain, it starts crying. No pretense, no manipulation, no. It cries when it cries and it's happy when it's happy. It's very simple in this way. The same in my relationship with God. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, like it's a business, as an arrangement there, uh, there must be some vested interest with the kingdom of God. So I have sarcasm and skepticism and all that will never enter it. You have to enter the kingdom of God in a simple way. When Peter felt that Jesus told him not to go away from Rome, then he stayed in Rome and he got crucified. Got crucified upside down, even. He got crucified, nevertheless. So, let's take one more of the rich ruler. So this is the parable of the rich man in other Gospels. Here it is given like this. A certain ruler asked him. So it was a person who had a function in the society, or a ruler, a kshatriya, as you'd say, in India. A certain, an aristocrat, as you'd say, in Europe. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. First, he rebukes him because this, this guy is trying to brown nose him. He's trying to butter his hole. Oh, good teacher, what should I do to reach eternal life? You know, like 
I want a nice answer from you and therefore I call you like in the it's what I deride in the Bardo Todol. Oh noble born Walzer. What noble born? Now you are just dragging your nose through the shit in the Bardo. What noble born? You are the slave of God. You are the last of the miserable. Oh miserable beggar Walter. You know, pray to God with humbleness, you know. Oh, noble born Walter. Right, so that you increase their arrogance and their vanity and their ego and attract them into more trouble, you know. So, like the same, oh, good teacher. You are the real deal. Good teacher, tell me, you know. And Jesus rebukes him. See, he doesn't take any... No, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Of course, he says, I and God are one and the same, but in another circumstance. He says, you can't know. You couldn't know. No? And so you are calling me good because you want me to be gentle to you, because you want me to be kind to you. No? You want to manipulate, basically. You want the most friendly answer, which I have to give. No? And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. He makes an allusion to the Ten Commandments, to the basic Ten Commandments, which Moses had brought on Mount Sinai. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, no, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever, you know, like he's a little bit too, you know, he, would, he could have said, I have tried to keep all this, you know, and sometimes I am a little bit, I'm, I'm a fallible human being, you know. Sometimes I'm thinking that maybe, like, nobody is that perfect. No, everybody is having weaknesses, moments of weakness or something, you know. But he is very on manipuristic, you know, a ruler in Israel, you know, he must be quite manipuristic and very puritanic. And he says, all this I've kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, like he didn't contradict him, because he kept saying, he could have said, look, I can see that you are lying to me, and it's not precise, you know, like why do that? That would have been extra useless scandal on things which are not demonstrable. And therefore Jesus is pushing the envelope. Jesus is upping the stakes, you know, he is putting the stakes higher, like, Okay, whatever you've done, obviously you are not there, because otherwise you wouldn't come and ask me for it. You would be a prophet like John the Baptist was, you know. So it's like, obviously, if you are not there, it means that whatever you tell me did not work. And I'm not going to tell you that you haven't done it right. But he just adds to it. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Like karma, no? You gave everything, you have positive material karma. Then come follow me. Like just to have positive material karma will not make you enlightened. You have to come follow me. Like you have to become like Peter and John and Thomas. Like you have to be also spiritualized, blessed by me. No? So there are two things. No? But of course this time he broke his back. Because there... He cannot go. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. 
Remember, if he had five shekels in his pocket, he just gave them away, and that was the end of the story. But because he had high five million shekels in his pocket, then he was not ready to give all that. So that, of course, shows what we talk in our lecture about aparigraha, that theoretically, all it takes is to be detached. But the more you have, the more difficult it is to be detached. So Jesus didn't ask, like, control yourself for a lifetime. And he says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Oh, nice. Now this guy was 30 years old or whatever. And he had a lifetime of self-control. It's not easy to live according to the Ten Commandments. Plus that the Jews had many more other rules in their lives, you know. And so he just gave him two extra things. Jesus looked at him. No, because now it was obvious that this guy will not budge. Like he gave him checkmate. No, he simply said, sell everything you have and then come follow me. You know? Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Like he just mentioned the babies. You know, A baby not being aware of the value of money and of everything would have given everything up for the new toy called the kingdom of heaven. No? But this man was not like a child. It is exactly what we are talking about. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is a famous and very bitter parable. History has given us some examples of people who were financially okay no, like nobody says that Lao Tzu was a poor man. Nobody says that Abhinavagupta was a poor man. Nobody says even about others. Even Ramakrishna had money to plan some pilgrimages. And then he gave all the money to the hungry people. Just like that. Boom. He just went for five kilometers to go on a long pilgrimage. Found a group of people who were hungry. And told to his nephew... Uh, you know what, give give food to these people. But what about our pilgrimage? Eh, fuck the pilgrimage, you know, it's like, that's it, no? Like a child, like a child, very easy, very not attached to the things. No? Having this childlike simplicity and candor in the matters of great importance. So here Jesus is giving this bitter judgment. He says people who have something to lose... They stick to it. They are attached to it very, very much. That's why we see that many people come to spirituality after they suffer very much, after they are kicked in the balls very much. And then when they have not got much to lose, then they are ready to listen to the wisdom. People who are on a high, on a high horse, people who are excellent going on and so on, they generally don't look to the left, to the right, they don't consider these things because right then they are on top of their form, they are on top of their life and they don't think about being humble and letting go. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? But of course he didn't say that everybody else 
He simply said, look, for the people who are yearning for this material attachment, they will have to be able to give it up for a period of their life as a spiritual test. Again, Swami Shivananda gave up everything and became a pilgrim. He went to Rishikesh. He had nothing. He was Mr. Nobody. And then later, 20 years later, he was in charge of the Divine Life Society. He was having ashrams and printing presses and universities and schools and this, you know. He must have handled millions or tens of millions of rupees, that guy. But he, he already had passed his test. He had been humble, childlike, simple, detached. And then he could cope with those things. So people said, but then it's so fucking difficult. Who can be saved? And like this Jesus is raising the stakes. Jesus raised it because psychologically he was annoyed by this rich man who thought he was so perfect. And Jesus had to kind of tense it a little bit to slap him over the face to show him that if you push the envelope a little bit further, you can't take it. So stop thinking that you are so good. In from my childhood, I have been so very perfect. It's like uh, when a guru hears that, he knows it's not a very good uh, sign. You know, when people start bragging about how spiritual and religious they have always been, it's like, uh, no, it's, I would have preferred to hear somebody say, I'm a sinner. I have done lots of funny things, you know. I've never loved God enough, you know. Can you help me to over? No, like somebody who is more humble. So Jesus pushed it, but by pushing it, he scared the other people around who said, come on, man, you know, the rules of this game are so tough. Who can be saved? And then Jesus replied in another way. He said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Like people are limited, imperfect. You would not expect a single human being to become a Buddha if you took it like this in a linear way. But you forget one thing, that enlightenment, it's always a matter of grace. Grace. Nobody can cross that line without receiving that ultimate grace. And that's why Jesus is seeing it, because he has this global vision on life evolution and relationship with divinity. And he says, don't bother. I can, I'm saying here, I'm stretching it for one and making it easier for another. That's not the point. The point is that you think that to reach God is a game which goes by some fixed rules. And it does and it doesn't. Because it's not only fixed rules. The grace is acting subjectively. And that's why it's not an objective scientific phenomenon which happens when you reach this and that. That's why Jesus simply shows that it's all about the will of God. He says, what is impossible with men? Like, now I made it sound really impossible. I asked the rich man to sell all his wealth. And he's like, you know, come on, Jesus, you stretch this guy too much. No? And then the other people say, if he cannot do it, then we who are miserable, what can we do? No? And Jesus says, it's not about that. What is not possible with men, because men have limitations and they are imperfect, is possible with God. Which means it's not a law. It's about grace. It's subjective. Salvation is coming 
from the goodwill of God. When God is pleased with you, you get saved. It's as simple as that. No? And even with some gurus, it's like that. Abhinava Gupta says it clearly. When I pleased my guru, he gave me the final initiation leading to nirvana. Abhinava Gupta doesn't say when I finished I don't know how many hours of tapas and I activated my Ajna Chakra and then I was worthy of it. He says a very stupid thing. He says when I pleased my guru, then he finally gave me the initiation leading to nirvana. If the guru is an asshole, that becomes tyranny, manipulation, slavery. If the guru is the real deal, which it was for the guru of Apinava Gupta, then that is simply the grace of God. Because the guru can do nothing but to allow the grace of God to flow. That's all there is to it. There is some rain, apparently. So let me finish this parable so we can finish for tonight. Then Peter said to him, but we... The apostles, the group which was, we have left all we had to follow you. Like Peter renounced his boats, his fishing nets, his business as a fisherman. And apparently he had a wife in that village near the Sea of Galilee. And he had at least one child, a daughter. So indeed, Peter, maybe some of the disciples of Jesus were young teenagers or something. But some of these disciples of Jesus were grown-up men whom Jesus took from their homes. He said, come follow me. And most of them did. And, uh, you know, and Peter says, you know, you are asking this guy to follow you to sell. But like we have all left what we had and we follow you like we fulfill the criteria. At least we, the apostles, we kind of fulfill the criteria. No? And Jesus is, of course, not rebuking him because he values their spiritual commitment. And he concludes this paragraph by saying very clearly, I tell you the truth. Again, there are some formulations which probably are standard in the Hebrew language where Jesus, using the language of the old prophets, he says, verily, 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 I tell, truly, 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 I tell you. Like he repeats some formulas three times, like emphatically, like emphatically, you know, insisting, you know, making it like now, you know, like don't think, you can say nothing of what Jesus says was ever bullshit or some jest or some words spoken chaotically like this, because this was Jesus. But to follow the thing, he felt the need from time to time to, to put the fist on the table, to kind of tell to the people, pay attention, you know. And therefore he's telling them, I tell you the truth, truly, 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 I tell to you like now, you know, don't take this easily because I'm talking to you from the depths of the universal consciousness, you know. And he says, I tell you the truth. He always tell, told them the truth. Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age 
and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the promise which is the essence of all the monks and nuns who go to, and to live in monasteries. You have to leave home, wife, brothers, of course, sisters, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Of course, that is equivalent with going in a Buddhist monastery, into a Thai monastery, going into an ashram of yoga, going like going somewhere where you practice spirituality and leaving all the soap opera out of it. Ah, that sometimes you need to tone it down, you know, like Milarepa took care of his sister when he found her as a beggar 30 years later. He had spent 30 years in a cave doing yoga. His mother had died and his sister, now his family was bankrupt, his sister had become a beggar. Maybe she was even a prostitute. The language which is used in the life of Milarepa is very unclear that she was like a beggar who was selling herself or something, you know. She was... Low life. She was the bottom of the society. And then Milarepa took her to him and taught her yoga. Maybe he did sexual tantra with her. We don't know exactly. It's mentioned in between the lines, so it's not very, very clear. It's not crystal clear. But he did something. It's not like uh, yogis don't do anything for the others. No. Shankaracharya became a swami. And then his mother died and he went and buried her. Because there were no brothers, sisters, there was nobody else in the family. And he knew they would throw her at the, at the edge of the village like a dead dog. No, there was nobody to take care of his mom. And he went and buried her. And the other monks in the community, they blamed him. They talked badly about him. They said, what kind of a Vedantic sadhu are you? You took the decision of not to attending the funerals of your parents and so on. And now look, you are a weakling. No, exactly as by Buddha when he was eating something and came out of a tapasya. And they told him, uh, you are a glutton. And Buddha told them, you should not stretch the string of a, of a lute, neither too strong nor too little, because then you cannot play the right music on it. No, he gave them the middle part. In the same, same way, Shankaracharya, he told them, for me, it doesn't matter, you don't understand. I'm at a level of consciousness where I'm not living my life by vows. Or anything. I'm not a robot. I did what my consciousness told me to do. No? And here it is the same. Jesus is encouraging people. No, it doesn't mean that you should become inhuman, but for some people it takes a superhuman strength because they break themselves. No, you should watch some of these movies about Teresa of Avila, about Teresa of the Andes and other Catholic saints, no, went to the church, to the monastery. They could not connect with their sisters, brothers, father, and so on. They had to stay isolated because they were coming from bourgeois families. They were coming from very cozy homes. And there the tendency was to run back to mommy and daddy and to a sister to talk about how difficult life is in the monastery and how much you have been subjected to this pressure or that pressure and so on. And you can't do that. It's not allowed to do that. No? And that's why people have to give up something. <clears throat> and again, for some people it's easy, for some people it's difficult. Maybe you remember the beautiful British movie Beckett, 
about Sir Thomas Becket, who was an aristocrat and then he's been made to take the vows. And he gives everything. And from time to time he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, are you sure you are not mocking me? Because my heart is singing. I'm giving everything and it's like I'm relieved and half in bliss already. It's like it's so easy. It's so amazing that I give up everything and I give myself to you 100%. Are you sure you're, it's not an extra test? Like it's not a test within the test that you are not fucking with me, you know, because how is it so easy? But believe me, for 90 something percent of the people, it's not easy. It's because Thomas Beckett was born for it. He had the soul for it. He just didn't know. And he discovered it then. And then he said, why is it so easy for me? Why is it so blissful for me? For people who are not that detached, it's more difficult, of course. It involves a certain effort and sacrifice. And Peter was aware. He said, we gave up every, like I could be with my wife and with my daughter. Of course, being with Jesus was like, whoa. You know, he saw Lazarus out of his grave, you know. Would that compare with being with your wife and fishing 20 kilos of fish every day? You know, it's like, you can't compare, you know. His life was flat and boring in his village. While here with Jesus, he was touching God. He was seeing the work of God. And he became something much, much bigger than that. And then Jesus reinforces them and says, I tell you the truth, like this is again coming from God. I'm not the idol talking here. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Like you get in this age many times over, that means psychologically, spiritually, you come out of sadness and pain and suffering. Like Buddha said, the essence of life is pain. And you have to get out of pain with a spiritual knowledge, with a meditation. No? So you will get the gift in this age, which means in this body, in this lifetime. And he says, in the age to come, eternal life. I always tell to people, if you make an effort to cut some contacts with family or something, and then you get eternal life. My goodness, there was no better investment in the universe because eternal life is something infinite. You made a finite effort and you got the result is an outcome which is infinite. Then if you have eternal life, you can spend 20 lifetimes to please the parents, the sisters, and the brothers, and whoever you left. Kind of overcompensate 20 times over. But you are still enlightened. You are still a Buddha. You already found the treasure. You already struck gold. And when you struck gold, then you can have all eternity to do acts of charity or other things. But if you try to do it in the reverse order, it doesn't work. It works only in this order. First, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus confirms. Because Peter says, but what about us? We left everything. And Jesus says, don't worry. All those of you who left everything, you will get many times over because of your act of renunciation. And you will also get eternal life 
which is bigger than everything else. All that thing that you'll get many times as much is nothing compared with eternal life. And thus, Jesus is confirming the value of this social sacrifice, which he was asking for the rich man. The rich man provoked him. Then Jesus pushed the envelope. And then people said, come on, man, this becomes like superhuman. Can anybody do it? And Jesus says, don't worry, because it's up to God. It's grace. And Peter said, and we who left everything? And Jesus reassures them. No. Actually, this was probably happening in February or March. And in June, these people got enlightened. It was the day of the Pentecost. There was 49 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. When 40 days were passed, Jesus raised to heaven in the Mount of Olives, just on the eastern part of Jerusalem. And then the apostles were alone for nine more days, eight, nine more days. And in the 49th day, there was the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then all 12 of them got enlightened. And so it's like it was not even a long time before the promise was fulfilled. He said, don't worry. All those of you. Who... Okay. In the case of Jesus, there were very special circumstances fulfilled. You are going to say, what about Milarepa, who gave up everything? But you ignore the conditions. Milarepa was a multiple murderer. Milarepa had very impure samskaras. Milarepa gave up everything because he was afraid of the karma which was coming and because he was living in Tibet where a lot of people were going to monasteries because in a monastery there was free food and free bed. No, Unlike the other people who sometimes slept under a rock or something like this. And that's why for Milarepa it was proportionally different. But for these people who had a family, a life, a job, you know, they were having this little bourgeois lifestyle. They had to make an effort. They loved Jesus so much. They were so touched. They were so impressed by Jesus. And their aspiration became so strong that they gave up everything. They gave up everything. No? And Jesus promised to them, like, don't worry. You are going to get many times over in this age, like in this body, in this life, at this time. Plus, not to mention that when you are over, you're going to get eternal life, which cannot be measured by any measure anyway. No? So, this is the message here. While the rich young ruler was hesitant, Jesus was confirming all the time. There, there, there. If your heart really loves God, if you really want to give it a try, if you somehow consider normal life insufficient, boring, flat, meaningless, then there, there. Because yes, it will appear that you are making some sacrifices. It will appear that you are making some sacrifices. No? But everything which you give up for God... God will give it back a hundred times over. Because God is not a stingy 
You know, it's like you say, God, for you, I gave up this. God says, do you think I'm ever going to owe you? Not even in the wildest dreams. You know, God is going to give you a hundred times over. Exactly like you are trying to give a gift to a king. And the king says, you are giving me a gift? Well, then bring all the gold and all the pearls and all, you know. He's drowning you in it because he is much more wealthy than you are. In the same way, when you give a small gift to God, it's just a sign of your aspiration. It's just a sign of your good intentions. It's just a sign of your choice. That, look, God, I made this choice. My choice is made. At least for now, you know, I don't know what you will choose in 10 years from now. But at some point in your life, we make choices all the time. All the time. Every year, four times per year, whatever. We make choices. When you make that choice, Jesus is giving you courage in your heart. He says, trust it. Trust your heart. If you, whatever you make for God, God will not owe you. God will not be your debtor. You know, God will always be overflowing with generosity and with gifts. And you will always owe God. God will never owe you. And therefore, he says, give. Because what you give in this way from your heart is sacred. It's blessed. It's guaranteed in this way. That's a very wonderful encouragement because before... He was just about to discourage people. And people said, then who can get enlightened? Who can get saved, you know? And Jesus simply said, leave it to God, you know? What is not possible for you, it's possible for God, you know? And then he reassured Peter and his own apostles. Let us stop here. I say it's late enough. Thank you all for joining tonight. Slowly, slowly, we're getting close to the final chapters of this gospel and um, next time when I have the time when I do a satsang I will most probably continue so as to see this fascinating personality of Jesus and fascinating teachings given to you in a yogic language with this we are done for today